Well, there are some things that are worth getting dirty for. Colleen Dykeman knew what this was like. It was a regular Monday, regular Monday morning, nothing unusual. But as she heard of the sound of the trash truck in the background, it suddenly occurred to her that she was missing something. She looked down at her hands and realized that two of her rings were missing from her ring finger. Her engagement band and her wedding ring were gone. And almost in a moment, she realized that when she lost those rings, it was the night before as she was cleaning up after dinner. She also realized in that very moment that what she had done was put the wedding rings in the trash can, which went outside to the curb, which had just been dumped into the garbage truck. In a fit and in a flurry, she said, I need to go chase down that truck. Those rings are valuable. And so she runs to her husband and says, we need to chase that truck down. She gets in the car and her husband, and they follow that trash truck all the way back to Babylon Town Dump. True story. She gets there and she pleads with the management, please let me in. I need to sift through your garbage to look for my rings. And to their credit, they let her do that. She gets inside the, the, the town dump and she sifts through six tons of garbage. Of course, looking for her own garbage pack. She also enlisted support of some of the workers who were there who no, no doubt sympathized with her search. And so they began looking with her. Four hours passed of looking through the town dump to no avail. But then she found it the trash bag that belonged to her family. She found it. And so she ripped it open and sifted through all the garbage only to find that there was no rings to be found. Or you can imagine how that made Colleen feel. Her, her heart sank into her stomach, a little glimmer of hope saying perhaps they're, they're still at home, but she knew for a fact she threw them in the garbage can. She remembers it. It's clear as day in her mind. So she was disappointed and she was ready to give up, ready to throw in the towel and ready to, to go back home and cut her losses except for one worker who said, you know what, wait, let, let me try. And so that one worker heads over to Colleen's garbage and starts sifting through it. And there, next to the soggy Cheerios and the slimy old rotten meat, were two rings. She found them. Colleen was elated. Her heart rejoiced within her. She skipped, she hopped, she, she probably cried a few tears, as you might imagine. She was stoked. <laughs> her life uh, in that very moment was, was a ray of sunshine. She hugged them, she thanked them, she brought them cookies and, and brownies and pizzas and all sorts of things to thank them for finding what was so valuable to her that she had lost. One of the workers went on the record saying, you know, I'm, I'm really glad we found the rings because in the 41 years that I've worked here, only three times have we found missing items. We can relate to Colleen, can't we? A lot of us know, or maybe all of us know, what it's like to lose something of great value and the struggle desperately to find it. Evangelism is much the same. It can feel like dumpster diving in Babylon, in a dirty, tough, difficult, and perhaps even impossible environment. But the value of the lost object demands our search, pulls us, compulses us toward it. Like it or not, 
This is the call that you and I have. We've been commissioned by God through Christ to search along with him in a partnership to search for the lost in our own type of Babylon. Today we're going to talk about that out of Matthew chapter 9. And what I'm hoping that you and I can see is that if we're able to value people the way Christ does, we're similarly going to be willing to get dirty the way Christ does to seek and save the lost. So please turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 35. We're going to look at what Jesus did, and hopefully we're going to see the way he saw so that we might do what he did. And it starts in verse 35, where we're getting a summary of what just happened in the last five chapters in the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew is summarizing all of Jesus' uh, ministry in the region of Galilee, saying in verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. So Jesus is busy. He's an itinerant preacher, running all around Galilee, proclaiming the gospel. Verse 36. When he saw the crowds, Jesus, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, we're going to pause on, and park on this verse for a few minutes here because this is where I want us to start. There's verses before and after this that we're going to spend some time on, but this is where I think it's important for us to slow down and see as Jesus saw You'll notice that it was his eyes that first beheld the crowds. He looked at them. And what did he notice? He probably noticed image bearers. He was the one who, in fact, created them, if you'll remember that. All things were created through him, and by him was, not, was nothing made that was made. And what provoked, what provoked him, or what he saw after he, what he saw, provoked him to compassion. The word behind the word compassion is splonidzomai, which is the inward parts, to feel deeply. In fact, we might put it today as his heart went out to them. It wasn't just a passive like, man, I feel bad for them, a kind of pity that you and I might feel when we see a lost dog. It was the kind of pity that moved him, an inward compulsion that said, man, I have a love for these people that provokes me, that compels me. His heart went out to them. Why? Look at the next, the next few words here. The people that he saw were not just passive uh, participants. They were harassed and helpless. They were sheep without shepherds. To be harassed uh, can mean flaying or skinning. It's not a pleasant experience. You might say to your kids, hey, stop harassing your brother. Stop throwing Cheerios at them. It's not that kind of harassment. This is a kind of harassment that is severe troubling. It's a kind of harassment that is, uh, that is difficult to behold. He also noticed that they were helpless, the word can mean to throw something down or to toss it about. It's the idea of being in a position of utter helplessness. And then he also noticed that they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is hard to read because Jesus is noticing that these people that were supposed to have uh, religious leaders caring for them, the scribes, Pharisees, and even the Sadducees, he noticed they were not doing their job. And in fact, you read about it this morning in Ezekiel 34. The commentary is this. He says, you eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. And so the sheep were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over the mountains and over every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. So Jesus identifies a group of people here that are severely troubled and lacking any kind of spiritual leadership that gives them the opportunity to escape their troubling situation. It's not too different from us today. 
You know, it's easy for us to see the people around us, to see the people sitting next to us, to see the people on the way uh, to church even today, and to not see them the way Jesus saw them. And so that's where we want to start. This morning, what I want you to do and what I want us to practice right now is to see people the way Jesus saw them 2,000 years ago. So let's start like this. Point number one, we need to see the urgent need for rescue. We need to see people as Jesus saw them. They're in urgent need of rescue. We have a a human parallel to this. Uh, Years ago, there was an ad campaign that ran uh, almost incessantly. It was a black and white, uh, it was a black and white commercial that showed hungry kids in Africa. They had distended bellies. You know, it was uncomfortable to watch because you can see, you know, basically see their skeleton. You could see their organs in some cases. Very troubling to see that. I remember the first time I saw that, I was moved disturbed even. I was young, and so I saw that, and I was kind of upset that there would be anybody who would be going without a meal. I was bothered. And then I saw it again, and again, and again, and again. And do you know what happened the second, third, fourth, fifth time I saw that commercial? Probably the same thing that happened to you. You probably looked at it and and said, bummer, and moved on. You might have yawned, or you might have ignored it. You might have seen it the first time and were deeply moved by it, but the second time, the third time you saw it, maybe it wasn't so impactful. I fear that the same thing can happen to us in our Christian lives as we look at the spiritually malnourished and impoverished. We could see our neighbors, our families, and our friends and say, man, they look like they're doing okay after all. You know, it doesn't look like it's so bad. But see, their physical lives may not be in danger or threatened, but their spiritual lives, which are far more significant in the long run, are the things that matter most to us. We need to be reconnected to the spiritually impoverished people around us. We can't see them as mere neighbors and friends. We have to see them like Jesus saw them, spiritually impoverished, harassed and helpless. And in fact, I think one of the things that Jesus identifies, I mean, remember, he's the creator. He's the agent that God used to make all of us here. And so when Jesus saw them, he didn't just see people. He saw a special creation, the pinnacle of God's creation. Made, Genesis 1.27, in God's image and therefore having inherent value. I tell this to the high school students all the time. I say, guys, I know you struggle with anxiety and depression and, and even perhaps even suicidal ideation, but understand you are precious in God's sight. And I can say that with full confidence because God's word tells me that you are made in his image and therefore inherently valuable. You are a special creation of God. And I think when Jesus sees them, he understands the same thing. It's so easy for us to see long lines and busy streets, or in some cases, not to see people at all, right? Where we can go to Starbucks and talk to our barista and give our order, but then we walk away. If I asked you, hey, who did you talk to? I don't know. I just got my order, got my drink and left. We've got to slow down and see the people that God has made. We need to train ourselves, rather, to see people, to look at them, and not just to look at them and smile, but to understand that this is a special creation of God that short of our intervention has a grim future ahead. We need to train ourselves to see the grocery store attendant. And I, it's funny, I, um, I'm one of those guys that I go to the grocery, I have a very specific you know, thing in mind when I go to Ralph's. I know what I'm getting, I'm gonna go to the aisle, I'm gonna leave, and don't talk to me. <laughs> I'm busy, I'm a man on a mission. I, I make my time useful too. I put my ear, ear, AirPods in and I listen to an audiobook or a podcast, and so I, I, just, I do my thing and I go. 
But as I did it this one day, I noticed something. I was in the self-checkout line because it was shorter and there's no one else there. I figured I could get through quickly and get back to my work. And I saw people <laughs> to the right of me. And I thought, okay, there's people there. There's probably another 50 or 60 people there. There's probably 150 people in the store right now that I have just passed by and didn't give a second glance to. And because I go to the Ralph's that's near my house, those are people that are probably my neighbors. <laughs> people that I live next to, hundreds, thousands of them. And so I took my groceries. <laughs> I took it off the self-checkout stand. I took my AirPods out, put them in my pocket, and I went to the actual checkout stand. And I talked to a person there. I said, this, is, this person, Lord, I can have an opportunity to talk to them and perhaps build a relationship with them because I live down the block. I'm here all the time. And they see people as valuable, as worth our energy, worth our efforts, worth us going out of the way. And really, it doesn't take a whole lot more time from us, does it? Just to spend a few extra moments looking at someone in the eye, smiling at them and saying, hey, how's your day? Happy Thanksgiving. How was your weekend? We need to see people as valuable. The grocery store attendant, the gas station clerk, the drive-through high school kid, the gym check-in person, the UPS delivery guy, all these people that we come across in our day-to-day -day need to have a much higher ranking in our value meter on a day-to-day -day basis. Once we see them, we need to do what Jesus did. We need to see past the outside. See, Jesus saw that people were indeed valuable, but he also saw that people were vulnerable. You'll notice he uses two words again, harassed and helpless. What do you think is behind that? Well, if you take a look and look at, look at the context here, he's talking about them not having a shepherd. They have no protection. They're subject to attack, to a severe troubling. And by who, you might ask? By who? Who's doing the troubling? Who's attacking them? Who's trying to get at them? Your enemy and mine. Our mutual enemy is waging a successful war against them right now. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says it this way. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Think about that. The devil, our enemy, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, making it impossible for them to see. He's harassing them, and they're helpless. What happens when someone's blind? They stumble, they trip, they fall. Again, they're vulnerable. Think about how, how this works out in day-to-day -day life. The, the unbeliever among you, your neighbors, your friends, your family, they have guilty consciences. They have consciences that weigh them down. If, there's, if their conscience is working at all, they know they've sinned against God and they're guilty. What does that do to somebody? And not only that, they're on the hamster wheel of accomplishment. Perhaps here, more than any, they know what it's like to achieve success. They know what it's like to go and to do really well at a company, to rise up, or perhaps to run their own company. They know what it's like to do this. And they're on the hamster wheel, you know, spinning and spinning and spinning, that goes nowhere. In the end, will they finally scratch that itch that plagues them? No. You and I know that, right? We see them harassed and helpless. They have false religions. I mean, it, if you just open your eyes on the weekend, you'll see, I mean, at least a handful of, uh, you know, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses that are out and about doing the work. They're going door to door doing the difficult work of evangelism for a false system. And your neighbors and mine are going to hear them and they're going to see these polite young men talk to them about the light that they have. And they're going to suck them into the religious system, a religious system based upon works. Of course, you and I know that works have no power to save. And yet they're out there winning converts, very successfully too, I might add. 
day by day, week by week. This is the kind of harassment and helplessness that we're to look at. They have no protection, and of course, they have no hope. They have no leader. They have no one to look to, no one that's going to seriously care for them and protect them. Think about this. In the latest data, the 2016 CDC studies report that suicide is the second leading cause of death for Americans 10 to 14 and 15 to 24. Suicide. In fact, the LA Times reported last year that there are increasing suicides on the Pasadena Bridge. So they're putting in signs that say, hey, there's help, call this number. Dr. Keita Curry of the uh, D.D. Hirsch Mental Health Services uh, recorded a message for them. And she even has a message for us who are, the, uh, who are those who can help. And she said, not knowing how to make the psychological pain go away, people can become helpless and helpless. And we get that, right? We get that. Again, for so many reasons, we get people are hopeless and helpless. And here's her message to them. Here's what she wants them to know. She said, help is available to anyone who feels depressed, alone, ashamed, lost, unloved, unworthy. Help is available. But ask yourself, what kind of help is she going to offer? No offense. What lasting help will they offer to those who are truly hopeless and helpless? Our hope and our help is far better. Think about this. We can talk to that same person. Hey, do you feel depressed? Great. I have a solution for you. I have someone who can give you hope and joy. Hey, are you feeling alone? Well, let me introduce you to someone who will never leave you nor forsake you. Hey, are you feeling ashamed? Great. I have the solution. You can be wrapped up in Christ and never have to suffer shame again because you've been honored by him. You feel lost? I know someone who can help find you. Do you feel unloved? Christ loved you so much that he gave himself up for you. Do you feel unworthy? Okay, well, maybe you are. We'll go, we'll go read to that one. That one we might agree with. But isn't our unworthiness what makes Christ's salvation all the sweeter? We never warranted God's affection. We never earned his favor toward us. And it's because of that that we can look at that and say, how amazing is our God that he would die for our sake, that he would send his son to die, uh, to, to be raised up on a cross and die in our place. That is the gospel. And that's the hope that we can offer to people that are hopeless and helpless, that are harassed. But it gets worse. Physical death is terrible, and we should mourn that when people die, especially when those take their lives. But Jesus says one other thing. He says they're like sheep without a shepherd. How well do sheep do apart from the protection of a shepherd? Of course, the answer, you know, if you've been around church for very long, is that they don't do very well. They don't last very long. Sheep without a shepherd are people without a savior. Which means for them, and, and the greatest sorrow is not that people die physically, although that is something we mourn, it is the death that occurs after death that we're most concerned about. The death that takes them to eternal hellfire. This is where the sermon gets a little more uncomfortable because we have to be face to face with what Jesus knew to be true, more than any of us. Here's what the scriptures say about hell. It is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. So painful and so, so tormenting that cries and gritting of teeth is the only acceptable response. Scripture also describes it as eternal fire, a burning that never ends. Scripture also defines it as outer darkness. To put it simply, 
the wrath of God is upon those who don't submit and turn to Christ. Do you feel that? Do you feel that? Reconnect with this. I'm working hard to help you and draw you into what I think Christ is making clear here. They're doomed. They're doomed. If you saw one of our Bible Kids Club kids outside on the Columbia Circle, playing around in the middle of the street, and you saw one of those delivery trucks on the way, kid is oblivious. In that moment, what are you tempted to do? What are you inclined to do in that very moment? You see the kid, you see the truck, you see the danger. You, like most of us I trust, are gonna run in an all-out sprint to take that kid away from the street, to yell at them as you run at them. Please move. Johnny, pay attention, there's a truck coming. You're running, you're running, you're sweating, you're, you're moving as fast as you can to get to that kid, and that is the most appropriate response. That is seeing. Here's another kind of seeing. He's having such a good time playing in the street. I don't want to interrupt that. He's just really enjoying himself. Oh, man, he's happy right now. And if I tell him that there's a truck coming, he's going to have to stop. He might even kick and scream. You know, he's one of those kids. He's going to throw his hands in the air. He might even punch me and hurt me as I'm pulling him out of the street. And that's just a little too much trouble. Oh. I pray that we're the first kind of people that see, identify the danger, and run to that kid. It might be a little demeaning to think of our friends, family, and neighbors as kids playing in the street, but the illustration is that people are in danger and they have no clue. That's what it means that when Scripture says they're blinded, they don't understand that their lives are in jeopardy in this very moment, but you and I do. Do you see them? Do you see? Let me just for a moment reminisce with you, Christian. Think back to your life before Christ. What was that like? Do you remember the kind of sins you committed? Do you remember the kind of hopelessness you had? Do you remember the kind of uh, danger you were in without even knowing it? Do you remember what it felt to be without hope in your, in your marriage? What it felt to be on the hamster wheel of accomplishment in your workplace? Do you remember what it felt like to not be able to pray and know that your prayers were heard before God? Do you remember what it felt like before Christ? Think back to what that was for you. Some of you were saved very young, and I, I'm grateful for that. And some of you have been saved for so long that it might be, you know, decades back before you were in, in Christ. But reconnect with that. Remember what that felt like. That's where your friends, family, and neighbors are right now. So what do we do about it? We see them as Christ saw them. Now what do we do? It's one thing to see, and now we're going to act. Let's look at what Christ does in verse 35. Again, verse 35 is a summary statement for the last several chapters in Matthew. But here's what he's doing. Here's what Jesus is up to in his itinerant preaching ministry. He's going throughout all the towns and cities, the cities and villages, so both places large and small. He's doing three things. He's teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, it's not surprising that Jesus is teaching circuit ministry here. He's, got a, he's an itinerant preacher, so he's opening the, the Torah with different people different opportunities. And then he's not just teaching, he's not just explaining what the Torah teaches, but he's also proclaiming the gospel. The word for proclaiming, another way that we translate that is preaching. He's preaching the gospel to people. And in fact, in Mark chapter one, he says, repent and believe. The gospel is here. 
And then the third thing he's doing, he's healing every disease and every affliction. Unique to Jesus' ministry. This is not something that we continue to do today, no matter how many people you see doing that on TBN. This is a different situation. This is, a, this is what Jesus' authentication. This is his imprimatur. This is God showing, this is my messenger, the messenger that I'm sending to you. And so what we're going to do is break down Jesus' teaching ministry. Say, what can we learn from this? And not what can we learn, but also what can we do? How can we replicate Jesus' ministry? In fact, let's put that as point number two. Replicate Jesus' ministry strategy. It's not what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? How can we replicate him? How can we model what he was up to? Back in the early 90s, one of the best songs ever came out. And really, can't call it a song. It's more of a jingle, a one-minute jingle that was wildly successful. So successful that the makers of this jingle brought it back out a couple years ago just to bring up the old times and show how awesome it was. Let me read you some of the lyrics, and let's see if you can figure out what song that is, okay? Here's, here's how it starts. Sometimes I dream... That he is me. You've got to see that's how I dream to be. Anyone know it? Don't, don't say it if you know it. I dream I move. I dream I groove. Like Mike. If I could be like Mike. You know the song? Like Mike. If I could be like Mike. You know that song? That jingle. Okay, if you don't know that song, look it up today. It'll be stuck in your head for the rest of your life. You're welcome. <laughs> It's funny, though, because that, that jingle, I mean, when I first heard it, I had no idea who promoted that. But at the end of the commercial, it says, be like Mike, drink Gatorade. And so I did what any reasonable kid would do. I bought cases of Gatorade and drank them liberally. <laughs> it left millions with that jingle ringing in their ears, even today. Yours truly. But what should be ringing in the hearts of us as Christians is not be like Mike, but rather be like Christ. That is our ring. That is our resolve. That is the anthem of our people. Be like Christ. And in fact, if you remember, Jesus said this, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. That's what it means to be like Christ. That's what it means to follow his example. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save who? This is why I'm here, guys. That's his purpose. And that's why you and I are here. And so as we follow Jesus' ministry example, I want you to notice first and foremost, in the, at the beginning of verse 35, he's going everywhere. Let's model after that. Let's evangelize everywhere. Everywhere you are is everywhere Christ belongs. And Jesus could have rightly waited for a crowd to gather. And in fact, on two occasions, he gathered such a large crowd, 5,000 and 4,000, that they were hungry and he provided food for them. He could have just stayed right where he was and let them come to him. He didn't do that, though. And I think part of the reason why is so that you and I might see how important it is for us to go to them. So go everywhere. In fact, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and where? To the ends of the earth. Evangelize everywhere. You are on a mission and you've been given a commission by God to be an evangelist wherever you set your feet. Wherever you are, Christian, that's the place to be an evangelist. Now, let me just put something in your, in your ear for a moment. Let's just think about this. We have a goal as a church to plant five churches in the next eight years. Ambitious, I know. And I know while you guys are thinking, man, who's the next pastor? Who's going to go out next? You know what we're thinking on the other side is which congregants are going to go out next? <laughs> which people are going to be prepared who want to raise up and say, send me out? Compass, my family, it's time to be thinking about that. When's the last time that you truly submitted before God? God, do you want me to go out? Do you want me and my family to uproot ourselves for the purposes of reaching the lost? I dare you to pray that. And I dare you to pray that with an open heart and an open mind, letting God mold you as he will. 
This is what we're called to. The adventure, the joy, the sorrow, the happiness that comes with being an evangelist. He wants that for you. And so for us, we got to be willing to say anywhere, God. We went through a popular series here at Compass called Adipat. Reconnect with that. Anything, any place, any time. Is that your heart's desire? If we're going to be faithful to do what Christ did, we got to be willing to go anywhere for the sake of Christ. For some of you, it might be joining our next STM. You saw STM Guatemala up here getting ready to go out and do some work in, uh, in Guatemala. That's great. Maybe that's the next, thing, the next step for you. And in fact, if you look up joshuaproject.net, you'll see people groups that are all over the world that are still considered unreached. In fact, on my prayer mate, I use prayer mate to track my prayers and to keep praying for people that I said I would pray for. And I subscribe to the Joshua Project uh, prayer feed, which every day will give me a new unreached people group. And you know what surprised me the first week that I was praying for them is that there were so many. And then I kept on seeing new cards, new people that were unreached. And then not just a few of them, millions of them. And then internally, I said what you probably would say, that's not right. God, who's going to go to them? And I started praying, God, send people to these people. Send somebody. Raise up people to go out there. Compass, I've been praying for you. I've been praying for God to soften your heart to what he might be putting on your heart this morning. Evangelize everywhere. For some of you, it may not be leaving. Your call might be to be here, to be Christians planted here in Southern California, and God knows we need that. So for you, it might just be being intentional at the public school where your kids are, are, are attending regularly. And so maybe you go early with the moms and you, you know, visit with the dads and you get to know them, you understand who they are, you learn their names. It might be uh, getting more connected in your kids' sports team so that you can connect with other parents and talk to them about you know, Thanksgiving and holiday plans and what have you. It could be slowing down at your grocery store like me. It could be uh, slowing down at your favorite restaurant and learning the name of the servers that you see all the time anyway. And gaining an active interest in who they are and saying, hey, uh, have you been to church lately? I'd love to invite you to Compass. And I'd love to take you out for lunch afterward. Maybe not the place you work at, a different place. Wherever you are, be Christ's ambassador in that place. That's the point is, wherever you are, evangelize every, but wherever you are, do it and be there for the glory of God. Take the initiative, take action, and be unwilling to be a, a background Christian. I know some of us are extroverted. We love talking to people. We love start spark, sparking conversations with anyone and everyone at all times. And some of us are a little more reserved. That's not our game. It's not the way we do life. But Jesus doesn't add a qualifier. Make disciples if you're an extrovert. Make disciples of all nations. That's the call for all of us. Jesus also taught in the synagogues. Parallel, parallel I think, for us is easy. We should begin to open our mouths about the word of God. We could teach the truths of Scripture. In fact, one of, the, one of the biggest, I think, hindrances between people knowing Christ is having someone, a Bible-believing Christian who knows their Bible well enough. In fact, one of the, I went online just to go look through some of the arguments that are being paraded today. Um, and it's the same old, same old. The Bible has errors. Or how about this one? The Bible contradicts itself. That's one of the most common arguments that you'll hear about the Word of God. Do you know what one of the best responses to that, to that argument is? Can you show me which ones you're talking about? And more often than not, you're going to find someone who says, ah, well, you know, I've heard about it. I know it's there somewhere. Just trust me. <laughs> Teach the truths of Scripture. People are, uh, are making accusations about God's Word that you, being an equipped Christian who has been taught at Compass, you can answer. You are fully equipped. You've been given God's Word. You've been taught God's Word week in and week out from this pulpit. You go to class. You go to men's Bible study, women's Bible study. You are ready to do this. 
And so you can teach the truths of scripture to your fa uh, friends, family, neighbors, love everybody. Mom and dad, let me just do an aside for you really quick here. As a high school pastor, I get to see kids every week in my ministry. And one of the things I would love to encourage you to do and never quit doing is to teach the Bible to your kids over and over and over again. Take nothing for granted. Their knowledge today doesn't mean that they're gonna be walking with Christ tomorrow. Never take for granted their spiritual maturity. Keep teaching, keep praying for them, keep investing in them. Grandparents, this is your role too. If you're a Christian and you know, that, you, you know what mom and dad are up to, partner with them and help them, train them to love Christ. Model it, live it, teach it over and over and over again. There is such a dramatic difference between kids who have been raised in a Christian family that know and love God's word and the kid who doesn't. Ask any of my high school leaders, they'll tell you there's a dramatic difference between those who know and love God's word or have been taught to love it, respect it, and those who simply have just recently come onto it. Teach the truths of scripture. Taking it a step further, Jesus didn't just teach. Again, I, I pointed out to you that he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. He preached. Okay, easy on-ramp for us. We need to share the gospel explicitly. There's a, there's a difference between talking about what the Bible teaches and saying, here's how that applies to you. You need to get right with God. Went to the spectrum one time, and I saw a gal there sitting on what used to be the fountain area. And I said, okay, she looks like she's ready to have a conversation. She's just on her phone. I'm going to go talk to her. And so I geared up. You know, it's always a bit weird talking to strangers. Never changes. I'm always a little nervous about that. But I went up to her and I said, hi, can I ask you a question? <laughs> and she kind of nods her head at me. Um, and just by the way she nodded her head, I knew this wasn't going to be a good situation. She nods her head and I said, so what do you think happens when you die? And the look of terror and mortification on her face, she was disgusted with me immediately. She got, I mean, just, I, she got up, and I think I even heard her say, you know, one of those, like, disgusting, ugh. She got up, whatever she was holding, and she just walked away as fast as fast could be. And there I was, standing alone. Looked around to see if anyone noticed this exchange. Saw no one there. <laughs> and I felt bad and discouraged. And you know the first thought that I had in that moment? I'm never doing this again. <laughs> Forget it. Even though that same phrase has worked on other people, in that moment right now, I was feeling so bad and so discouraged by the way that she treated me that I'm like, I'm never going to do this again. I'm finished. Of course, the more rational, thoughtful part of me soon chimed in. Could you not suffer just a little pain for Christ's sake? Could you not be looked at with a disgusted look a little bit for Christ's sake? You remember Christ was spat on, right? Remember Christ was beaten for you, right? You remember that he was mocked while on the cross for you, right? Yeah, I felt bad and I wanted to quit. There's a lot of things that you're going to experience as a Christian as you share the gospel that are going to cause you to say, you know what, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm over this. This is not easy. What often stops us, it's awkward and weird. I get that. We all know what that's like. What often stops us, I don't have enough knowledge. I don't know enough. The answer, honestly, is that you do. We might say, well, I know too much. I have a hard time talking to people about Christ because, you know, I'm so well-trained. I use words like justification and sanctification and, and uh, infralapsarianism. And, and sometimes I say those things and people don't understand what I'm saying. Yeah, that, that might be an issue too. Or you might be like me. You might be tempted to quit because there's discouragement from a few rejections. And in fact, in today's day and age, you might suffer just a few more than we used to. 
Or how about this? I know that if I share my faith, if I tell people about the gospel and I share it explicitly, people are going to reject me. People are going to disown me. I'm going to, uh, you know, ruffle feathers and I'm going to perhaps lose my job or I might, you know, my class might not like me. There's so many ways that this can go wrong. But let me tell you how it can go right. When one soul enters the kingdom, God rejoices and it is worth it. God calls us to be disciple makers. Matthew 28, go and make disciples. That's our call. Now just imagine this. What if all of us at Compass today said, you know what, starting today, no matter what has happened in the past, no matter how many times I failed, no matter how many times I had the shot and didn't take it, today I'm going to make it my goal. By the grace of God, by prayer, I'm going to bring at least one soul into the kingdom this year. What could God do to our church with that kind of environment, that kind of attitude, that kind of atmosphere, people that are zealous soul winners? This room would be packed to the gills. We'd have to add more services. And not only that, because you'd be soul winners who are making soul winners, we'd have even more, more people here. Every soul counts. High school ministry made a shirt that says exactly that. Every soul counts. We value people here. And so it is so important that we value them the way God does and says, you know, I'm willing to be sent out, God, for your sake. Share the gospel explicitly like Christ did. And here's the thing, guys. You don't have to wear a sandwich board after church. You don't have to go running down your block like a madman, deranged lunatic saying, hey, repent or die. You can do something small starting today. You might be buying gospel tracts. It might be handing out some of the flyers from the Christmas musical. It might be something as simple as inviting a coworker to coffee to spark up that conversation. Whatever it is, do something. See as Jesus saw and do as Jesus did. That's the goal here this morning. The last one here says here that Jesus was healing every disease and every affliction. You gotta understand that Jesus' healing ministry was really about uh, a sign that focused on his spiritual healing ministry. Luke chapter five, you have the story of the paralytic who was, raised, who was lowered down into the, the roof and Jesus said, hey, I see your faith, your sins are forgiven you. People stood back and said, wait a minute, buddy, you can't say that, that's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And then Jesus said, hey, you're right. What's easier to say though? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? And of course, the implication being it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Any whack job can say that. But only the true son of God could actually raise someone from a, from a mat, from paralysis. That's exactly what Jesus does. He says, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he performs the miracle. The physical healing ministry of Christ was meant to authenticate his spiritual healing ministry. And so for you and I, while we can't heal people, we can't go to Hogue and start raising people from their beds, we can tell them how to get their physical, their spiritual malady healed. We can tell them to take the spiritual medicine of repenting and trusting Christ. So really we could say not only preach the gospel, but call for response. The call for response is urgent. Do you remember that in Mark chapter one, when Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel, it was written in such a way that it was an imperative. It was a command. It wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't, hey, if you feel good about this, come and join me. It was repent and believe. And that's how we got to present it. We have to be willing to talk to people in ways that are difficult and strong, but also true. Well, all this is good. Everything that I just said would be a colossal failure unless we started with the proper prerequisites. Look at verses 37 and 38 as we begin to wrap things up, wrap things up here. Turns to his disciples, his followers, his learners, and he said, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. That's fascinating, isn't it? The harvest is plentiful is what he says, which is to say that it's not that there, there's people, it's not that there are people that are not willing 
but that the church isn't willing. At least in that point, harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He says in verse 38, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's interesting that he would, would say this instead of say, go out there and do it. The two words that, that are translated pray earnestly is one word in the Greek. It's deomai. Uh, it means to beg, to be impassioned, to earnestly seek and ask God to do something. And that's what he's saying we need to do when it comes to our evangelism efforts. Our first place priority is this. And it's funny because this is the one thing that often feels least productive. But in God's economy, he says, this is first. Before you go out and do this, therefore pray earnestly. Point number three, we need to prioritize impassioned prayer. I know you and I both know what it's like to go in our prayer closets and just have this kind of like, Lord, please do this. And I, want, I would love for you to do that. But Jesus is saying, I want you to beg God for this. Beg God for this. Approach his throne with zeal and with intensity. I'm not saying you have to raise your voice in your prayer closet, but he's saying there's a type of attitude that has to uh, accommodate or, uh, or come alongside your request for people's souls. Prioritizing passion prayer. In a rush to get out of the house this morning, I plopped the iron on my pants and began to, to iron my pants. But the persistent wrinkles were not coming out, so I pressed harder and began to move it a little more vigorously. I was just about to give up and use the, the cheater spray, the wrinkle release spray, until I realized my one critical error wasn't plugged in. Makes sense, right? See, our evangelism can feel just as strained, forced, and ineffective when we're not plugged into God by prayer. This is our starting place because this is where our power is derived. We're in a spiritual battle that requires spiritual tools. And if we're going to win the victory, I mean, we, we can't rely on human intellect. I know you guys are all smart. We've all learned. We've grown, in, we've grown in the church. We've learned about what God's truth is. But if we're going to be effective, we have to do, do it the way that God has commanded us, to trust his spiritual tools. One theologian said, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. We need to pray because this is how God accomplishes sovereign purposes. This is how he accomplishes the things that he intends. I know for some of us, we might use God's sovereignty as a means to say, well, if God's going to save somebody, he's going to do it because he's sovereign. He's going to predestine them. He's going to call them to himself. He's going to get to them somehow. Let me submit to you that while that is true, the simultaneous truth is not only does God sovereignly predestine people to be saved, he also sovereignly predestines means for their salvation, namely prayer and instruments like you and me. Remember in Genesis chapter 18 and 19 where uh, God is sending the angels to destroy Sodom. He tells Abraham, like, I'll, I'll, I'll relent. I won't destroy Sodom if I can find one righteous man, I ten righteous men. God predestined to relent from that disaster. And of course, God knew that who was in Sodom? Lot. Lot was there. The angels knew that God was going to save Lot. He was going to bring him out. And yet when the angels showed up for Lot, did they just say, hey, we're here. What are you going to do? No, they commanded him, hey, get out. It's time to go. God's judgment is coming. Even though the angels knew that God predestined to save Lot, they still told him, get out. It's a similar thing for us. God predestines people to salvation, but he's calling us as his instruments and his partners to say, hey, I want to use you to sovereignly save so-and-so. Get out. Flee from the wrath to come. We need to pray also because it focuses our heart on the things that are above. You know, it's so easy for us to be myopic and to look only at what's in front of us, to get so preoccupied with our house, our jobs, our kids, our activities. And what we often forget is that there's so much, a so much larger picture ahead of us. 
One of the questions that I often ask myself that is so helpful is, will this matter in 100 years? I learned that from my pastor and yours. That when you ask that question, that really does crystallize and clarify for us what really matters most. And that's what prayer does for us. Prayer calibrates our hearts to what matters most. It sets our minds on things that are above and helps, for, helps us for a moment temporarily not have our minds fixed on things that are below. What we need to pray is, is difficult. We need to pray for more evangelists. And again, this is where I've been praying for you and for me. We want our church to be a church full of soul-winning evangelists, people that are passionate about seeing the lost one to Christ. Compass, we're, we're on a, we're doing a project to say, Compass 2020, we want to plant churches, we want to establish a, a Bible institute. We have big ambitions, but it will not work if it's only the pastors who are on board. And what will matter most for this church is not that necessarily you're contributing all the money you have, but that you contribute your heart and your prayers to winning the lost. That's the win. If you begin to say, you know what, today I'm going to commit to loving God by leading people to Christ, that can change everything for us. If we all said, you know what, I'm going to commit to my small group to evangelize one person a week. I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to tell them about Christ one person a week. That could change us dramatically. That could change the dynamic that we have here. And for all the, for all the right reasons. Pray for more evangelists. Starting your small group. Pray for that, those people. Pray for daily opportunities. That's what Paul asked the Colossians to pray for him in Colossians 4.3. And then keep your eye out. There's always opportunities. It's just a matter of us taking them. And then what you need to expect is two things. Expect God to save through your efforts and expect God to use you. We're not looking at it, but in Matthew chapter 10, you know what Jesus does? After having them pray, <laughs> he says, hey guys, thanks for praying. Now I'm gonna send you out. The prayers are really uh, the soil that our evangelistic efforts grow from. This is, where, this is where we begin. This is how we start, and this is where we continue. <coughs> Prayer is what greases the wheels of our evangelism. So let us begin the work by taking seriously the call to pray more earnestly that God would send out faithful laborers and that we would be among those ranks starting today. There's a debate that's raged for years. It's divided families, houses, and I bet it's even going to divide this room this morning. And it all centers around one question. When is it the appropriate time to listen to Christmas music? 9% in one study, 9% said December 1st. 12% said always. 26% said November 1st. And the large majority, 52%, said anytime after Thanksgiving. I don't know where you fall on that spectrum. The correct answer is always. But wherever you are, <laughs> it's, it's the season for Christmas. It's the season for Christmas. It's a season where our culture says, you know, we're going to stop, slow down, and think about presents and all sorts of things like that. In fact, number 30 on the iTunes 100 list right now, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. We have been given a specific season a couple times a year where it's just a little more appropriate and a little more welcome to talk about spiritual things. It's an easy on-ramp for us. And while you and I can disagree that, uh, about what the right time to listen to Christmas music is, we probably don't disagree that now is the time for us to take up spiritual arms and to make a dent for the kingdom of God. 
Matthew 16, Jesus said to Peter, on this rock I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christian, you and I have a message that can change people's lives radically. Now is the time to share it. You and I have a message that if understood and accepted can transfer people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Now is the time. You may build great cathedrals, large or small. You may build skyscrapers, grand and tall. You may conquer all the failures of your past, but only what you do for Christ will last. What are you gonna do? Let's pray. God, we know what your word says about evangelism. We know what your word says about praying. And perhaps this is one of those harder conversations that we have when we know that all of us are convicted. None of us does this as well as we'd want to do it. But I pray, God, that there would be comfort in our, in our church this morning, that you would not let us walk away feeling ashamed, but rather empowered and encouraged, that we would love you and seek to serve and honor you by being obedient today, being doers of the word, not hearers only, but doing so with the proper spirit, not a spirit of obligation, not a spirit of, uh, of gritting our teeth and forcing ourselves forward, but out of a spirit of joyful, joyful acceptance of what is our privilege to share Christ to our friends, our family, and our neighbors. We ask that you empower us to do that this morning, starting right now. In Jesus' name, amen.